All right, Matthew's Gospel, chapter number uh, 17. We'll read down through verse 9, and then we'll pick up in verse 14, read a few verses there. Uh, we began uh, looking at some places that Jesus visited while he was here on earth. Uh, we realized that he never took a step out of the will of God. Everything was according to God's divine plan. But also, I believe that every step he took was with you in mind and me in mind. So I think we can go back to these places where he visited and those experiences that took place there and it can make great applications to our heart because I believe he's still walking among us. He's still walking with us. He's still walking in us. And so we want to look at some of these places and let the Lord just sort of apply it to our hearts and uh, see what the Lord is is trying to say to us. Jesus is on the mountain of transfiguration. And I, I want to emphasize how he is being revealed to us. And I believe that the Lord wants to reveal himself to us in new light, in new places, in new experiences. The reason why you are where you are and going through what you're going through Not that you might see the circumstances, but that you might see the Christ of the circumstances. And so look in verse 1. The Bible said, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured. That word is uh, from whence we get our word metamorphosis. It has the idea of the little worm building a cocoon and then turning out in bursting forth as a glorious butterfly. Jesus is transfigured. This is not only something that happened to Christ, but Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse number 18 that we're, we're changed. That's that same word. We are metamorphosized into the same image from glory unto glory. We are being changed into the image of Christ. So look at there, the Bible said he was transfigured before them and his face did shine as the sun and his raiment was white as light. Reminds me of John's experience on the Isle of Patmos. And behold, there appeared unto him Moses and Elias, or Elijah, talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, It is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Drop down to verse 14. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed. 
For oft times he falleth into the fire, and oft times into the water. Look in verse number uh, 18. Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. And the child was cured that very hour. Ephesians 1.17 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. It's all about Him. And if you live a lifetime and you never know Him, then uh, that lifetime is wasted and will end in tragedy. But thank God for every circumstance and situation that he uses as an opportunity to let us see him in a little different light. Now, there are basically three things that I want to say about Jesus being on the mountain, being revealed by vision and by voice, being revealed by sight and by sound. Let me point these three things out to you. First of all, I want to suggest from verse number 1, Uh, down through verse number 4, that Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's being revealed unto the disciples, notice this, as the sovereign Jesus. Now don't let that word uh, disturb you. It simply means He is Lord. When Jesus called these disciples, He did not call them to get their input. He did not call them to find out what their ideas were about the situations. They have no opinion in this. But this is all about a Christ who is Lord that takes his disciples to the top of the mountain that he might reveal himself unto them in a special, special way. Notice with me in verse number 1 as to to the point of time of which he takes them to the mountain. I'm saying again, he is Lord. The Bible said, After six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. Now, we know the transfiguration takes place here, but the question could be asked, why did he wait until a year and a half, maybe two years into his ministry, to let the divine side of himself be seen by his disciples. It looked to me like it would have been better if the day that he called them, if he had took them aside and say, hey, look at this. I'm not just a man. I'm not just a prophet. But I want you to see the God that is in me. And he would have transformed himself before them. But the Bible said he waits six days. I'm not going to suggest an importance to that. But uh, again, I have wondered why did he wait so long to reveal that important side of him? And I'll, I'll tell you what he told me. He said, it ain't none of your business. So he's Lord. He's leading them up there when he wants to. His timing will always be right if you'll just let him take care of the clock that runs your life. Notice also who is with him, the people that are on this mountain. I thought about how that there is Peter and James and John. Now again, I I would have argued that point, I guess. I would have suggested, you know, Lord, if you're going to take one, take them all. Why not let all 12 of them see this 
God side of you. It looks to me like it would be better than them trying to share it uh, with the other uh, uh, eight or nine uh, uh, of them. Uh, why, why not do that? Why do you take just Peter, James, and John? And, you know, of course, Jesus let them into the inner circle. Uh, they were with him when he went into the garden of prayer. They went in with him when he went into the centurion's house to heal the daughter. It seemed like when he was going to call on the inner circle, it was always James and John and Peter. And I thought about it. I thought about the other Jameses that were a part of Christ's ministry. There is, of course, his brother who becomes prominent after his death who wrote the book of James. He's the literal brother of Christ. But before he really gets on the scene, early on, there are two Jameses that are, of course, uh, a part of uh, being apostles. And uh, there is James, the brother of John. And then the other, the only thing we know about him is he's called James the Less. Boy, isn't that an humbling title? And rightfully so, because... Can you imagine the first time Jesus said, I need you, James, I, I, I need you, you, Peter, I need you, John, I need you, James. And then both Jameses stood up and Jesus said, no, not you, I, I need the brother of John. And so he had to carry, the, he was sort of the guy who was always in the middle. He, he wasn't first when the first James who was beheaded was uh, went into that inner circle. And then after that one was beheaded, it seemed like the last James, the brother of Christ, seemed to uh, be prominent and seem, uh, seemed to rise up. I've often said that if you're a part of a family that has anywhere around 10 or 11 or 12 children and you're number five or six, you really don't count. You could die. They wouldn't miss you. I mean, my goodness, you've got nine others. Who cares? Uh, but here is James. He's, he is the less. He's... He's, he's, he's left out. And again, I say I, I, I would have questioned that. But I say to you what the Lord said to me. He said, it ain't none of your business. I'll take you where I want you to go, and I'll take them where I want them to go, and he'll lead us where he wants us to go. Then notice, even further than that, he has these prophets, Moses and Elias or Elijah, two of the most prominent prophets in the sight of the Jews of the Old Testament. And they show up in this, in this meeting. What a spectacular experience that must have been to these three men. But I thought about that. Why did he call Moses and Elijah together? It would have seemed to me to be more practical if you're going to call Elijah, Elijah was one of the only two men that ever got out of this world alive. And the other one, of course, was Enoch. So I would have thought if he's going to call two men to this spectacular meeting, that you'd call the two that never died. You'd get two of the same uh, uh, circumstances and situations. But again, I say to you what he said to me, it ain't none of your business. I'll call to the meeting, it is mine. In other words... It is uh, his ministry, it is his meeting, it is his mind. If we're not careful, we'll begin to try to negotiate with heaven. We'll begin to try to offer our opinion. Oh man, we've been saved 20 years. Surely the Lord ought to listen to me. I mean, look Lord, I'm trying to tell you something. I ought to know a little bit. No, you don't. He's Lord all of the way. 
He takes them up on the mountain. Somebody said, but it ain't fair. Well, I'm one that wants to suggest to you that I found out one of the most blessed days in my life was when I found out that my God was not fair. And I was glad He was not fair. Somebody said, why? Well, if God had been fair, do you think His Son would have died on the cross? Who's the guilty one? Not Jesus, it's you and it's me. But God never operates on the principle of what's fair. He operates on the principle of favor and of grace. He saved you by grace. He'll keep you by grace. He leads you by grace. He directs you by grace. And He is Lord. Thank God we have a Lord that knows it all. And He wants us to submit to His Lordship. So I notice that He is seen as... As the sovereign Christ. He is Lord. Oh, life would go so much better. If we quit trying to push the buttons and pull the levers and so on and say, Lord, it's yours. You go ahead and take care of it. But now I want you to notice with me, not only is he the sovereign Christ, but secondly, look in verse 2. Again, it says, and he was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun. I know if you've ever tried to look into the sun and all of its strength, it's a blinding thing. But could you imagine Jesus is standing right there in their presence? He's not millions of miles away. He's right there and all of a sudden there is this brightness and this boldness and this glory that breaks forth out of Him. And they are there to experience the shining Christ. They are there to see Him in His brilliance, in His magnificence. He is transfigured before them. And His raiment was white as light. Wow! How would you like to be in a service like that? where Jesus became so real that you could just literally see the God side of Him. He shined. He shined. Well, I'll magnify it a little bit in a moment, but I just want to say in passing, I'm glad for the times He shined for me. And I'm glad for the times He shined in me. And thank God every now and then He shined out of me. But you know, as I was looking at this text, the shining of Christ was not what seemed to to grip me. The fact that he showed his divine side. It was not the shining that got me. It was was how that for, for those years that he was here on earth, he seemed to conceal himself instead of reveal himself. Uh, in other words, as he said, down, coming down off the mountain, said, don't, don't say anything about this. On another occasion, this happened on several accounts, he said to the devils, he rebuked them and, and, and commanded them not to speak because the Bible said he knew that they knew who he was. And uh, so he wouldn't let it be revealed. And here's the thing that gripped me. We know that Jesus is the Son of God. 
He is God wrapped in flesh. He's not born of the material of angels, but of the seed, the Bible said, of Abraham. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So, in this physical body of normal human size is contained all of God that there is. I don't think you can divide God up and put a portion of here and a portion there. He is God, the Bible said, manifested in the flesh. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But how in the world can you have so much in such a small package and it not leak out? But yet I noticed that from the time of his birth to the time of his death, he did such a good job of sucking it up that there wasn't but a handful that even knew, had any clue as to who he was. Now, for most of us, if we've got any intelligence, we don't suck it up. We want everybody to know it. Or if we've got any strength, we're not going to suck it up. We want to show it. Or if we can do something, now you women know this more than anything else, if you finally can get him off the couch and get him to do something, he wants to be bragged on. You say, how you know? Because that's me. I mean, if I'm going to do it, you better brag on me. And if we've got any talent or whatever, we are, we are tempted to let it all shine, aren't we? But yet here is the Son of God with all power in heaven and earth, very God of God, and on every occasion, He clothes it and he sucks it up. He holds it in. He retains it. He conceals it. Now, I'm going somewhere. Listen to me. And I thought about that. I I thought about the day that he went in to the temple. And the Bible said that the doctors and lawyers, the, uh, the religious crowd, they marveled at him at his, as to his questions and his intelligence. They marveled at what a 12-year-old boy could say. But I, I wonder what could he have said if he'd have wanted to say it. Huh? I mean, what all could he have said if he'd have wanted to say it while he was in there? But he did. Then I thought how that the Pharisees said he can't be the Son of God but his daddy is a carpenter, and he also is a carpenter. But I thought about it. You know, when a man goes on to a job for the first time, he has to have somebody to instruct him. He has to have somebody to to train him, does he not? Uh, There has to be someone there over him to guide him. And I thought about Jesus when the first day he went on the job. Joseph brings him up there and said, here's my son Jesus and, and he's going to be a carpenter, help the family out and everything. And uh, so the boss said, all right, Jesus, I'm going to put you over here with Bill or John or whoever and said he's going to teach you a thing or two. And can you see old Bill or John over there? They take Jesus over there and they say to Jesus, first thing, they said, now Jesus, before we build anything, we've got to lay a foundation. Did your daddy ever show you anything about laying foundations? 
You ain't never laid a, have you ever laid a foundation? And Jesus, what could he have said? Oh, yeah, my, my father taught me about foundations. Matter of fact, I laid the foundations of the universe. But he didn't say nothing. He just sucked it up and worked around there like he didn't know how to dig a foundation. And then I can hear him say, now, Jesus, we got the foundation. Today, what we're going to do is frame it. I wonder, did your daddy, Joseph, he ever teach you anything about framing? <laughs> Jesus could have said, have you got a million years? And I'll tell you how to frame things. I can frame the whole world and hang it out there on nothing. I don't have to nail nothing together. <laughs> but he didn't do it. He just sucked it up. This worked like everybody else doing, doing what everybody else did. Ain't that amazing? Huh? Pilate brought him in there and said, uh, Art thou the Son of God? Herod told him the same. Art thou the Son of God? And both of them marveled that he answered them not. He just sucked it up. He told Pilate, said, Well, you say I am. And he sucked it up. They took him and put him on a cross. Somebody said, if thou be the Son of God, come down. Could he come down? Oh, yeah, he can come down. But honey, he sucked it all up. I'm going to tell you, when I listen to those poor, deluded souls on television as they, as they make fun of the gospel, make fun of Christ, my heart reaches out because I know there's one thing wrong. They are blinded to the truth. The devil has blinded them. They cannot see. And no man is ever going to know God unless Christ reveals himself unto him. But here's what I want to say to you. You went 33 and a half years sucking it up. But one day, almost 44 years ago, as a 14-year-old boy walking down an alley, I'd heard the gospel on three occasions, and guess who showed up? The darling Lamb of God. He didn't show up covered up. He didn't conceal himself. Thank God he said to me, I am the Son of God. He revealed himself to me. And honey, since then, on many occasions, don't you love it when you come to the house of God and Jesus not only shows up but shows off and you know you've seen a freshness of who the Son of God is. I'm glad He's revealing Himself to us. To me, He's the shining Jesus because I've been privileged to see so much. I get his word out. He just sort of waves at me from the text. He said, do you see me in here? I said, yeah, I see you in there, Jesus. I like that. And then I flip it on over and he waves at me from another text. And I keep seeing him throughout his word and throughout worship and throughout his will and throughout his work. I'm glad that God Almighty has been a shining Jesus on our behalf. So, he ain't sucking it up. He's showing it to all of us. But now, notice with me, not only do we see the sovereign Jesus and the 
shining Jesus. He's Lord and thank God He's light. He's shining for us. He's shining in us. And as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, He's shining through us. Metamorphosis of His shining taking place in our lives so often. Don't you love it when the man of God takes the Word of God and opens it up and it's like a flashlight. It's like a bold light. And you're seeing Christ in a fuller sense. He's shining for you personally and personably and powerfully. He's shining. The shining Jesus. But now I want you to move on down with me to verse number 12. I want you to notice that he's not only the sovereign Jesus and the, the uh, shining Jesus. He's not only the Lord. He's not only light. But this is a revelation of Christ that has become more real to me than the most any other truth about him. And it is the fact that he emphasizes at the end of this great monumental, marvelous experience on a mountain where Moses and Elijah show up. When he comes back down off the mountain, he does not say, all right, go immediately and get some flyers put together, get some horns and let's broadcast this and make sure that we have a seminar on five, seven steps on how to get on top of the mountain. No, he doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, when he comes off the mountain, the thing that he says to them, just, I don't want you to say anything about this. He said, tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen from the dead. The truth of the matter is, sometimes the Lord will take us up and he will let us have some wondrous experiences with him. He'll let us see him in his glory. When I was saved, I was saved in 1968 and I was saved during a time of revival. Many folks saved and called to preach, and it lasted two years in my life. I mean, I knew there was a devil because the Bible said so, but I hadn't experienced him because it seemed like the Lord kept me on the mountain. But I'm going to tell you, after that two years, I came down like a dive bomb, and I realized that I still had a flesh, and I still had temptations, and I still had attitudes and things like that. And... uh here, Jesus has taken them up on the mountain, but the problem I find is everywhere I go, the number one priority is everybody wants to go on the mountain. They want to have some kind of a super-duper experience with Jesus. Now, I'm not going to negate that. I'm not going to make fun of that. Hopefully, he will give you some measure of revival, or in your personal life, he will take you to some places to where you can see him shine in all of his glory. But here's what I'm saying to you. He may take you to the top of the mountain. He did the disciples, but he didn't leave them there. And they only went one time. And then they had to come back down. And when they came back down, it is here that I want to magnify to you not only the sovereign Christ and uh, not only the shining Christ, but I want you to see the simple Christ, who to me is a precious Christ. If we're not careful, we'll lay the demands on him. Oh, Lord, take me to the mountain. I need to go to the mountain. Make me feel better. And, and, uh, let, and, and everybody, everybody, every church just about, or every preacher or many of them have a little path going up some mountain that they think that's a big experience and they want to take you up there. 
Well, I want to say to you, I'm not interested in going up your mountain. I didn't come here to take you up my mountain. Because there ain't no sense of going on no mountain if Jesus ain't there. He's the one that led them to the top of the mountain. But, truth of the matter is, 99.9999999% of the time, you're not going to need the Christ of the mountain. You're going to need the Christ of everyday living because that's where you live. When Jesus brought them off the mountain, He began to work. He picked up where He left off in the simplicity of ministering to people where they were at and what they were going through. That mountain experience is not about that mountain experience. It's about ministering to the needs of others that are down here. But I'm afraid that we have sort of gotten discontented with the simple Jesus. We want a super-duper Jesus. Uh, We want a Jesus that, I'll tell you, just stays on the mountain so we can go up there. And haven't you been guilty of this? I have. Uh, I know know, uh, as a pastor, every service I wanted to go up the mountain. I found myself praying about it. Lord, would you take us up the mountain today? Lord, if we need to go up the mountain, and it seemed like he'd said, no, son, I'm not going to go up the mountain with you today. I ain't got that in my plans. But I thought what I'd do was I'd give you a good message, and then I'd take you to the house of God, and I'd preach it through you and minister to the saints that ain't been on no mountain. They've been out there in everyday living. And they need to hear of the word of a simple Christ. Now, hadn't you, hadn't you in these last days, I mean, with everything falling apart, don't you say, Lord Jesus, would you take me up on the mountain and let me, let me win the Reader's Digest three or four million dollars? If you do, I can pay my house off, pay my car off, and I'll help the church out and help the preacher out. Would you just, would you help me, Jesus, to win something? And have you heard him say, no, that's, I don't have that in my plans for you, but I, I thought what I'd do is uh, I, would, uh, I would meet your needs daily as he prayed. And I'll make sure that everything's taken care of. But I won't get you far enough ahead to where I'm going to spoil you. I'll just do it one day at a time. Huh? Now, haven't you ever felt those aches and pains where you said, Lord, would you just heal me? And sometimes he does do that. Sometimes he will do a shining work and uh, he'll, he'll do provide in a marvelous way or, or he'll heal you. I've seen him. I've witnessed him heal folks. But I'm telling you, so many times don't we cry out and say, Lord, would you take us up on the mountain and take this infirmity away from me and I'll praise you the rest of my life. And he said, no, I, I, I don't plan on taking you up on the mountain for that, but I know you got surgery next week, and I figured I'd go to the hospital with you. You'll be in that room several days, and I'll just stay in there with you. I'll sit there by the bed, and we'll fellowship and talk together, and, and we'll worship. Oh, I love that kind of Jesus, don't you? I'm talking about not you and I. Always looking for a Jesus that is up there. You say, preacher, I came to church tonight hoping I'd see Jesus. You didn't. He wasn't at your house this morning? I mean, was he by your bed when you got up? 
Jesus, I just wish you'd take me to the mountain. I wish you'd be uh, super duper. No, I won't do that. But I, I thought maybe I'd just get in the car and ride with you to work. And we'd have some good fellowship. We'd get over there with that machine and talk a while. I say to you again, 99.99999% of our lives is just everyday living. You don't need a super duper Jesus. You need a simple Christ who's going to be there where you're at, on your locale, in your neighborhood, in, in your circumstance and situation. He said, I just want to be to you what you need each day. <laughs> Coming down off that mountain. Now, if we're not careful, we'll be to get dangerous. The mountain experience is the most dangerous place to be because that's where all them theories come from. The new revelations. Peter and John and James got up there and Peter all got caught up and said, Lord, and I don't blame him. I'm going to tell you, if old Moses and Elijah showed up here tonight, I'd, I'd, I'd have something to say about that. And uh, I'd be calling preachers and say, guess who was at church last night? But did you notice that Peter, J, Peter looked at the Lord and said, Lord, let's build us three dwelling places. Tabernacles up here. And the Bible said, while he was yet talking, verse 5, while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, shut up. Now, that's my rendition, but I'm going to tell you, have you ever been talked over? And somebody rudely interrupted you. Well, the conversation on that mountain had turned toward the wrong folks. And what God was saying is, uh, Moses had his day and Elijah had his day. But this ain't about Moses and Elijah. This is about my son. And don't you run off of this mountain and tell them folks what Moses said and what Elijah said. You go off this mountain and realize what Jesus said and you won't be caught up in some cockeyed theory. <laughs> because when they opened their eyes, they said there was no man there save Jesus. Honey, when we come into the house of God and leave, it ought to be about Jesus. When we sing in the choir, it ought to be about Jesus. When the preacher preaches, it ought to be about Jesus. Everything ought to be about the simple Christ that we're excited because He is a part of our lives. And He said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. I like the simple Jesus. Oh, no, 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 no. Listen now, every now and I, I could sit down and tell you some big things he's done. But most of what he's done for me is just been with me through every day of life. And I sort of like the Jesus that I can fellowship with and walk with and I can talk with. And when we come to the house of God that we can worship the simple Jesus. I was uh, thinking about C.H. Spurgeon, a great pastor, preacher of the 1800s. And when he was a teenager in England, instead of having public schools, they would uh, have boarding houses. And they would put their children, you know, in those boarding houses. And there they had professors and teachers that would teach them. And he said that 
he was in this boarding house with other students, teachers and professors, but he said there was one little old lady up in years that her whole job was to mop and sweep and wax and sew and clean and cook. She was the lady of the house. He said, one day I sat down across the table from her at lunch and we began to talk and he said, I realized that that woman had something big in her heart. And he said, from that day on, every day at lunch, said we would sit there and have fellowship. And here's what C.H. Spurgeon said. He said, that little old housemaid taught me, who was probably the greatest preacher of his day, preached to five to 7,000 people every Sunday, wrote many, 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 many sermons and books. He said, that little old woman, and I'm going to tell you, pastors and preachers from all over the world went to see Spurgeon for his advice and his teachings and his preachings. But listen to this. He said, that little old housemaid taught me sitting across the table, all the Bible or a theology I would ever need to know. Woo! Somebody said, how could she do that? She hadn't been to seminary. She hadn't been to Bible college. She hadn't, no, she hadn't. But I'm going to tell you something. She'd get out there and sweep and sweep with Jesus. And they'd talk. And he'd start telling her things. <laughs> She'd get out there and mop, but she'd mop with Jesus. She'd sit down and sew, but she'd sew with Jesus. She would wash the clothes, but she'd wash them with Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, he tanked her up with so much truth in simple places. First church I ever pastored is up a little old creek called Roaring Creek, North Carolina. Now, I know everybody says this, but I'm telling you, if you could take the trip with me, it's as far back as you can get. And the reason why they call it Roaring Creek is because it's such an incline that that water just flows out of there across them rocks in such force that there's never a time you can't go up there and it just, it, it just roars out of there. And uh, they're just a little old country church. Most of the folks that were there were up in age. But I'll tell you, they didn't know a whole lot about the outside world. It was probably three to 500 people lived up in there, but they, they, they were sort of isolated. They just farmed up in there and what have you. But I got to noticing that I don't even know if they knew who Billy Graham was. Because I got to noticing they knew who Jesus was. And one day... As a 22-year-old boy, now I'm standing before those old saints, some of them 70s, 80s, 90s, and I was preaching on faith, and buddy, did I know a lot about it. 22 years old, preaching to them, them old-timers that had, they had socks older than I was. And right in the middle of my preaching on faith, the Holy Ghost spoke to my heart, I'll never forget it. He said to me, if you'll watch some of these people, I'll point them out to you. And through their lives, I'll teach you more about faith than you can ever learn reading some book. 
I said, Lord, I'll take you up on that. And I'm going to tell you, all those years in those mountains in seclusion, I followed those saints around and I saw Christ in their lives. But it was a simple everyday Christ, not a super duper Christ. We live in a day when we're, as I say, dissatisfied with the everyday Jesus. That's why folks are leaving churches like this. They just don't want the everyday worship that's going to get you. They want to go over there where they can, you know, be lifted up with some kind of a who knows what's coming out of that place. And I don't mean to be judgmental or condemning. I've listened to it to, to, to see what it was like. But I'm going to tell you in that contemporary budget, have you ever listened to their music? They've left Jesus, the, the simple Christ, out of it for some emotional swing. Listen to it. I've listened to it. They go something like this. It's like you're in the 60s. Oh, the skies are blue and the grass is green and the breeze is so sweet. Alleluia. Alleluia. 10,000 times. And I'm saying, shoot me. Just shoot me. You say, preacher, are you in some of those places? No. When I find out it's there, I know we're on the wrong track. I'm not, I, I, I got no, pl- I, I, I'm just not interested in green grass and blue skies. I'd like to have a little Bible in my singing and a little Bible in my prayer. I'd like to have a little real Jesus that's going to help me tomorrow and help some dear saint. I'm going to tell you, I'd like to have a Jesus that doesn't mind hanging around a 90-year-old or an 80-year-old or a 70-year-old or a 7-year-old or a 5-year-old. I'd like to have a Jesus that can hang around us every single day of our lives. And I'm going to tell you, I've had a simple Jesus since I was 14 years old. And I'm out interested in switching. Uh, You can get you super duper if you want to and climb all the mountains and do all that other stuff. But just give me Jesus. Because I'm going to tell you, when the rest of that crowd's gone, he's going to be hanging around. You may have not even recognized him. He may come in the form of some little old saint. Simple Christ showing up in simple people. 